Gary Emery. It's a name that may be familiar to many of you. Also familiar, but potentially less apparently so, is the mark that he has left on cities around the world, notably on his his home city of Melbourne, be that directional signage in a car park or instructional signage on an exhibition building. Gary Emery, his work is always functional, often witty, sometimes bold, sometimes subtle, forever though iconic. And his designs for decades now have shaped the way in which we experience built places. And not just in the city of Melbourne, of course, Gary Emery is a figure of international stature. And his life's work is set out in image, essay, notes and ruminations in a sumptuous new book, Connecting the Dots. That's out through Hardy Grant. It's an extraordinary survey of a remarkable career. So, uh, when I was invited to take a walking tour of Gary Emery's Melbourne, it was an honour and a privilege to accept. Gary Emery, hello. Hello, Jonathan. We're, we're here at the, the base of Melbourne's Eureka Tower, which is, was quite the thing when this went up. It was. I think uh, for a long time it was the tallest building in Melbourne by quite some height. And it has the, the scary disappearing floor observation deck. That's how it people does. might remember it. <laughs> it does. No, no. Um, in fact, we were responsible for the, the uh, fit-out of the observation deck on the, uh, I think, the 85th floor or something, something like, like that. Something intimidating like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. The big moment for you here, though, is, is lower down. Well, yes, the residence car park is uh, something that we were asked to attend to pretty late in the piece, and Nanda Casalitas, the architect, invited us to look at the car park and to do something interesting with the instructional signage. Because there are certain things that in a car park need to be done, need to be said to the people using it? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, whilst it's not a public car park and uh, there's not a great need for signage because people generally in a residential car park know exactly where they're going. But in this instance, I think Nanda was more interested in, in uh, injecting a bit of human interest into the building, into the car park. We're going to wander in a minute and have a look, but the, <clears throat> there's drama in what you've done. And I guess, as you say, Londa was wanting some interest there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in a building like this, which is, has drama, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a pity not to have that, 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 that sense of the dramatic echo through its entirety. Yeah, well, it's, it's injecting something, the spirit into the building that otherwise wouldn't be there. So in a way, it's kind of, functional information, but in another way, it's uh, it's entertainment. I think we've got, we, we, we can now be accompanied and go and have a look. Oh, hello. 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 This way? No. Gary, tell us the, the big in and a big up. Yeah, well, there are... Very bold. There are four words. There's in, out, up and down. It's pretty basic. That's all you need in a car park. It's pretty much all you need. <laughs> and uh, what we did is at monumental scale is project these words onto the ground plane and the walls and in a way that uh, and infill them with paint so they're painted on the floor painted on the wall and um, 
most often when you enter the car is something to be viewed in motion. Yep. And when you enter the car park, the letters appear as abstractions. You don't read them as words. But as you move through the space, the letters, the distortions align with each other and they snap into place as words. So they become legible at a point of, uh, a critical point, decision-making point. I can see how that would work. And, but the, the, the drama of those words spilling out onto the, onto the, the, the pavement beneath them, they're so huge. They are, yeah. Oh, there's down. I've just seen down. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's an illusion. Once you know that it's projected, it, it enters another, there's another yeah. sort of layer yeah. of perception there. And you can say, of course yeah. it is, you think to yourself. Yeah, otherwise, how do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would have been a great triumph for the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and from a car park of illusions to a shed otherwise known as the Melbourne Exhibition Building. The feature of this building is that it's very unified and it's very legible in the sense that it's easy to find your way around. And that's really important. This is, this is a space that invites new audiences constantly. It's incredibly clear. Yes. There's no doubt where you have to enter. And that becomes particularly important when it's subject to huge crowding and multiple exhibitions. Yes. So yes. as a visitor, you need to understand where you enter to your exhibition. And that's been thoughtfully uh, responded to by the architect in terms of how they signified entries into this long linear space. And uh, their work has been really enhanced by our work in terms of signage, and the two things have been uh, integrated very seamlessly. So we're coming up now to the, the one of the, the first entry here um, off this colonnade, which we know because it's got a big number one on it. So yes, well, there's a system of blades that extend from the inside to the outside. The blades, I imagine, are sort of four or five metres, maybe, maybe taller. And there's giant or monumental letters, numbers, numerals, uh, applied to each of these blades in multiple directions. So it's identified from the inside and the outside it's, it's, and from the east and the west. This is well, we should go entry. Inside. We should pop inside here. <laughs> there's quite a... Little sea of signage here for car parks to yeah, identify those doors and the blades, as you say, with their internal expressions yeah. here. The blades are painted in bright colours with large numerals, and uh, it helps also to relate the inside of the building to the outside because the mm. blades project through the glazed, the glazed uh, frontage. So, in a way, the signage. It's very functional, but in another way it's decorative and it certainly enhances the, uh, the sensibility of the space. It must be an amazing thing too to produce work of, of such, such sort of public prominence. I guess it is, but I, I don't think about it that way. How do you think about it? I feel quite removed. You know, I don't have any feeling of ownership over the work. I don't feel emotionally attached. Mm. Yeah, I think once the work's done, it's finished. 
Except that once the work's done, it's not finished. It's yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a living thing. It is a living thing. You're right. But my, the interest in the work for me is doing the work, thinking about the work, finding a solution, investigating the options, trialing work, and then when it's done, it seems like the job's done. It's finished. The interest is in getting to the end. <laughs> but on the other side of it, I mean, as we stand here, it must. There must be some satisfaction in seeing this, as you say, well cared for and still, you know, It's very well vibrant. cared for. That, that, that's, that pleases me no end, yeah. But, so I mean... there's a lasting attachment. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. But so much of it's abused and some of it comes up for public dissatisfaction too, mm. you know. I mean, one work of ours was removed from the... Uh, the Treasury Building by a minister, a parliamentary minister, hmm. on the basis that he thought it was inappropriate. What was that? It was uh, a large sign on the Treasury Building at the end of Collins Street, and he decided that... Uh, what did it say? It didn't say much. It was just a big object. It was a contemporary sculptural sign, large scale, hmm. but because it was contemporary. He thought it was inappropriate to a historic building, right. which is totally incorrect because there are contemporary insertions in historic buildings all over the world. They can be luminous things. That's yeah, the pyramid in the... What's the Louvre. Name? The Louvre, yeah. yeah. And the, uh, the big dome at the uh, Reichstag building in mm. Germany. I mean, they're all famous interventions of modernity into historic buildings. And the thing is that the, the museum that was in the Treasury Building failed as a museum because they removed the signage. And that's... Right, right. The, because people... Di originally, the building was designed as a treasury and the entry to the treasury was minuscule Subtle. because <laughs> they didn't want people to enter the building. And then when it was reused as a public museum, yep. you need they wanted to. to encourage people into the, Hence into the building. Bold and Hence we had a, a bold <laughs> intervention that was out of character with the original building, so it was noticed yeah. and it drew people up these giant stairs onto a windswept podium into a mean little door down into the exhibition. I mean, the point of historic buildings in our society today is to reuse them. That's mm. how they get saved. Repurposing is Repurposing the building is fundamental yeah. to their success. I wonder, we're heading back to the entrance. I, yeah. I wonder in, in, that, in that long career where, I mean, were you, are you, would you call yourself a modernist as a, as a broad description? I would, yes, or everybody else seems to think I am. I'm not sure, so, but I have been dreadfully influenced by postmodernism. And I think the work is really a combination of more than one thing. It's not strictly yeah. modernist. I mean, modernism was really a philosophy as much as it was a, a visual expression. And I think that's what gets misunderstood, that it's not just about the appearance or the visuals, it's, the aesthetic. It's far deeper than that. It's yeah. far deeper than that. It I was, mean, the early proponents had a, a, a huge social yeah. agenda that went with it's, it. It's a social agenda, mm -hmm. yeah. And that was the driving force of the aesthetic. 
I wonder though whether the aesthetic over over that span that you've watched yeah. in your career, and we, you have that example there of the the minister's unseemly yeah. reaction, but whether that response to the modern has I don't know, I think we've, we've become more habituated to it as, as a culture. I think now we accept yeah. that that visual language much more readily. We do, but by and large people are alienated by abstraction and that's why postmodernism is more acceptable, I think, to the majority of people because it does have historic references. It's literal and it it's, uh, has a meaning that's easier to accept. What does the eminent designer make of abstraction? The eminent designer? Yourself. <laughs> myself of abstraction? Mm. I love abstraction. Yeah, that's where my interest lies. A designer whose genius perhaps lies in this appreciation of abstraction on the one hand and commitment to clarity on the other. And in some cases, a very brilliant capacity to do both at once, to convey meaning and articulate a message in ways other than the didactic and the literal. That's so cool. <laughs> We're at a, an apartment building in Flinders Street. It's 108 Flinders Street. And the Street. architect here? The architect is Nanda Casalidis, or Fender Casalidis, I should say. And we're in an internal courtyard which has uh, a narrow connection between two walls which makes it quite dark. There's an absence of light which um, makes it difficult for anything to grow in here. Trees have turned upside down. (laughs) Yeah, and we have a wall of planting and hanging uh, from some wires that are strung between two sides of the building are some inverted pot plants, they're turned upside down with the, the trees hanging out of the pot in a, a downwards direction. Quite spectacular and it's, it's whimsical. It's whimsical, yeah. It's, it's kind of an enigmatic space. Mm. There's a, a reflection pool inside the space and uh, there's a gymnasium that looks onto the courtyard and across the reflection pool to the work that we did, which is a digital mural. The purpose of the mural is no more than something to look at, and it's uh, particularly effective if you're in the gymnasium working out. You look out on a, a wall which we've titled the... Uh, I think you call it the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. So it's a, a highly detailed illustration of a botanical scene, I guess, that has butterflies, fruit, Lots of flowers, yes. insects, various types of plants. Essentially, it's kind of a, a pictorial fantasy of a garden, like a fake garden that uh, enhances the rest of the fake material in this space. <laughs> I mean... It really lifts the space, though. It's a beautiful, beautiful liveliness. Yeah, it's lit from above mm. and... Uh, it has quite a luminous effect on the space and it's quite large. I know it's the entire length of the courtyard, which... Um, yeah, it's I a, don't know, a decent one-and-a-half cricket metres. pitches, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the image is digitally printed onto aluminium panels. Okay. Not much more you can say about well, that. It, it certainly <coughs> distinguishes it from the original Garden of Eden, which was 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are no naked people on this one. It is a great space, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting space. I mean, the problem with the space is that the two, the two parts of the building are too close together, and that was determined by the plan, I guess. But then apartments overlook each other. So part of the idea of the <coughs> inverted pot plants... Right, to give some screening. ..was to give some screening in between you know, the, mm. the apartments on opposing sides of the space. But on the other hand, it was whimsical, as you say. Yeah. From whimsy to contradiction. Now at the... Uh, is it still the Paris end of Collins Street? We are. We are. <laughs> this is Christine on Collins. It's a... Boutique for ladies' wear. High end, very yes. high end. Christine is, uh, as always, and I've known her a long time, had very red lips, which we made part of her branding. There they are. On the there wall. they are on the wall. And they're encased in a, a seed shape. We redesigned her branding and the signage on the occasion of her relocating in Collins Street. Okay. Then. So it's um, a symbol of a new life, I guess, the seed. It's an esoteric explanation. But it's, it's a lovely piece of stylish too on this. this it's, a, it's quite an old building. It's sort of probably early 20th century. Yeah. Uh, but the, the stone of the building, the, the boldness of the, the colour and the signage, it's a nice, yeah. they're a nice thing together. It's a nice contradiction, I guess. Contradiction and difference. Key aspects of the career of a designer whose influences range from surrealism to modernism, minimalism and constructivism. And that diversity, or perhaps it's curiosity, that intellectual openness and creative vitality is mirrored in the diversity of the projects and commissions that he has taken on. Hence, we move from red lips and women's wear on Collins Street to the centre of Australian political life in Canberra. Parliament House was probably the most significant project we had handled up until about 1983 or 1985. And uh, that commission really turned our practice from being a conventional graphic design practice focused on two-dimensional work into a multidisciplinary practice that was engaged with the built environment and working in international environments. Um, so uh, we're only able to do that through the confidence we gained in doing the Parliament House in Canberra, which I think was finished in about 1987. And that project taught us a lot about working in three-dimensional space with architects and on major public projects. So it was a steep learning curve. Incredibly intricate process, I would imagine. It was, it was complex. Mm. The project was complex and the magnitude of the project was formidable for us at the time. Created your own typeface for that. We created a new typeface for incision into the stone fabric of the building and for moulding into uh, epoxy and bronze letters 
as well as incision into the into stone. We learnt a lot from the Italian architects who were very sophisticated and had a very deep knowledge of design that informed the building and along with that uh, we got to understand their processes and their methods for operation which helped us with larger buildings. Well, and and you've, you've worked in some very large buildings. Very large buildings. I mean, we, we uh, were graphics consultants for the uh, Burj Khalifa in Dubai and the Taipei 101 in Taiwan and the uh, uh, Petronas Towers in Malaysia. So uh, you know, that gave us confidence in working in other places other than mm. Australia in cultures that were very different to our own. It's been a steep learning curve for a long time. Do you feel you're there? No, not at all. I feel like I'm beginning in a different way. I want to move on to doing other things. I feel like I've still got something to contribute, even though I'm very old. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, a, yeah. a fine thing to feel if one yeah, is I do. I feel, years. Yeah, I feel energetic and... Uh, you feel curious. I feel curious, yeah, very curious. Yeah, I want to understand the world and uh, I want to know how to function within it. You know? Is that, in, in a way, a shorthand of, of what design is? is, is a thing which helps us understand the world and interpret it? Well, I think it is and uh, I just hope I can continue that till I drop off the perch. <laughs> <laughs> a superbly crafted and <laughs> subtly detailed perch. <laughs> Yeah, nicely designed perch. Quite yeah. so. <laughs> that was Gary Emery, acclaimed designer, founder and former creative director of Emery Studio. Uh, his new book, Connecting the Dots, is out through Hardy Grant. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.